The fifth and final solo we will look at today is Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. I want to read to you from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 11. I want to begin in verse 33 to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that to you belongs all the glory, to you alone. And Father, we ask that you would, in your grace and in your mercy today, by your Holy Spirit dwelling in your people, illuminate your word. Lord, that we would be a people whose minds are renewed. That we would be a people who would give a bright, clear, loud witness in word and in deed to the world in which we live. That your name would be glorified in your church and your kingdom would come upon this earth and your will would be done even as it is in heaven. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to focus on the last verse I read, Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. This small verse contains a statement great enough to fill the cosmos and more. For of him and through him and to him are all things. One must deny this verse to deny what it is clearly proclaiming. All things are of him and through him and to him. To the one of whom all things are, to the one through whom all things are, and to the one to whom all things are, to one be glory forever. The glory belongs not to any of the many, but to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. This reminds us that salvation and life itself is to the glory of God alone. Scripture alone is our sole authority in faith and practice in all of life itself. And in the scripture, it is revealed that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all of this is to the glory of God alone. The scripture teaches in Psalm 3.8 and Jonah 2.9, for example, that salvation is of the Lord. 
meaning our salvation is accomplished by God alone, and so to God alone belongs all the glory. Therefore, as we live our life before the face of God, under the authority of God, we are called to do all to the glory of God. But before we can talk about the importance of what this means, to God alone be the glory, we must be sure we know who is getting the glory when it comes to our salvation and our justification. Our view of grace will determine our view of glory. The topic central to the Reformation was that of our justification. And at the heart of the controversy over our salvation and justification was the issue of God's grace. How we are saved determines who gets the glory. We must ask a very important question. Is the glory to God alone? Or does man get some glory in salvation? That's a very important question in determining how we are saved and who gets all or at least some of the glory. The reformers held the biblical view that to God alone belongs the glory. The scripture teaches that salvation is a work of God alone, apart from any participation by man. Thus, it is God, not man, who is due all the glory. The Catholic and Arminian or semi-Pelagian view holds that man has a necessary part to play in his own salvation. And according to this view, man's part in salvation is to choose to accept Christ and his gospel. This belief means that apart from man's choice, God's grace alone cannot save man. This belief became widely accepted from the heretical teachings of a man named Pelagius. Pelagius was branded as such, but the root of his false teachings endure to this day as they conform more closely to the fallen nature of man. Remember, Adam did not want to be under God's authority, but he wanted to exercise his own authority, his own will, instead of submitting to the will of God. And so the sinful nature of man still today kicks against God's sovereign authority. It is from Pelagius we get the term semi-Pelagianism, or semi-Pelagian. Pelagius did not believe in original sin. Remember, we talked about him when we talked about the grace of God. Pelagius did not believe in original sin. And though he admitted it was helpful, he did not believe the grace of God was necessary for salvation. In salvation, Pelagius emphasized human choice over God's grace. And those who adhere to some of the beliefs of Pelagius are today called semi-Pelagians. Unlike Pelagius himself, semi-Pelagians do believe the grace of God is necessary for salvation. So there is no professing Christian today holding to the orthodox faith who would say the grace of God is is not necessary for salvation. 
So all good Christians would say today that God's grace is necessary for salvation. But how that grace is applied, there is a difference depending on who you might be talking to. So even though the belief that God's grace is necessary for salvation, that grace, according to those who hold a semi-Pelagian or Arminian view, do not believe that grace is irresistible or efficacious. The semi-Pelagian and Arminian view asserts that God's grace is necessary to make salvation possible, but it does not make salvation certain. Those who hold the semi-Pelagian or Arminian view would say that God's grace provides only the freedom for man to make his choice whether to accept or to reject the gospel. From this view, it would be logical to say that those who accept the gospel make a good choice and those who reject the gospel make a bad choice. That begs the question as to how much glory is due those who make the good choice for salvation. Surely some, if salvation is their choice based upon their will. Those holding this view would say, yes, salvation is by God's grace, but not without man utilizing that grace to make his free choice to accept or to reject the gospel. This view characterizes God's grace as giving every man the opportunity for salvation while giving no man the certainty of it. The implication, at least from the cross moving forward, is that Jesus died to give men the opportunity to be saved while actually saving no one. That means the Son of God endured the cross without actually accomplishing salvation for God's elect. Under this view, the elect are those God foreknew would choose him. In other words, in this view, God looked down the corridor of time and saw in his foreknowledge, in his omniscience, those who would choose him. Those who would say yes to the gospel. And those are the ones that he elected, that he calls elect. No one disputes the doctrine of election. Or you have to dispute, you have to throw out the Bible. So it's not that we either do or we don't accept the doctrine of election. It's how we understand that and apply that doctrine. Well, some would say, yes, of course, there are the elect of God. And the elect of God are those whom God looked through time and saw would choose him, and he elected them. The only problem is with that is that God is making a choice based on man's choice, and that's actually not what the Scripture teaches us. That makes man's salvation contingent, at least in part, on man's own work. Biblically speaking, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, the elect are those whom God foreknew and chose in him before the foundation of the world based solely upon the good pleasure of God's will. 
not according to man's will or man's future choice. If man has any part to play in his own salvation, then to God alone the glory does not belong. If man plays any part, then at least in part, man shares the glory with God. To be clear, man does not share the glory due only to God. For God alone is the author and the finisher of our faith. This means to God alone belongs all the glory. It is God alone who saves us, and to God alone then belongs to the glory. I want you to see that if man is able to take even a tiny part of the credit for his own salvation, then he owns at least a tiny part of the glory for his salvation. And if this is the case, then man's salvation cannot be to the glory of God alone. The scripture is clear. Man can take no credit for his salvation and therefore he cannot receive any part of the glory that rightly belongs to God alone. So listen to Paul's words in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. I just referenced it, but listen to what Paul writes. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. It is by grace God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And it is by grace he made us accepted in the beloved. We did not make ourselves elect. And we did not make ourselves accepted in the beloved by choosing him. We chose him because he first chose us. The same reason we love him because he first loved us. It is to the praise of the glory of his grace and in no part anything of ourselves. Listen to Paul's words later on in this letter in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. But to God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Paul writes, we were spiritually dead until God made us alive. A dead man cannot cooperate with God in anything, much less his own salvation. A dead sinner can do nothing except be an available corpse for God alone to use for his glory. Thus, while we were spiritually dead, we were incapable of contributing to our salvation in any way, shape, or form. We are wholly dependent upon God and his grace, which means to God alone 
belongs the glory. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Paul writes, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So not only were we spiritually dead, we were sinners deemed legally and justly guilty. Being found legally guilty, we are justly condemned to suffer the wrath of God. The Father sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. He didn't need to send Jesus to condemn the world because the world was already under the condemnation that came as a result of the fall. The world was already condemned under sin and death from man's fall in the garden. And our only hope is in the grace of God. That was true then. It is still true today. In his grace, God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son into the world. The father sent the son to save the world. He did not send the son to save every human being in the world but to save every kind of human being in the world, both Jew and Gentile. This is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first. The Father sent Jesus to the Jew first, but salvation was not just for the Jew. Salvation was for the world, meaning it was for all the nations. And that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, for God so, the, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever, Jew or Gentile, would believe in him would have eternal life. So the salvation of the world is the salvation of every kind of human. God sent his son into the world to save all who are his elect from before the foundation of the world, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. Being legally guilty under the penalty of God's wrath, our salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Man cannot redeem himself and man cannot clear himself from sin. He needs the grace of a savior for that. And that is why the Father sent the Son. Thus, man is not a contributor to his own salvation. Man is only a recipient of God's salvation, and he can only receive it by God's grace. You cannot even receive the gift of God's grace, the gift of God's salvation, unless God imparts to you the grace to receive it. What can a dead man receive? He has no ability to reach his hands out and take anything. He has no heart in which to accept and to receive what God seeks to give him as a gift until he is first made alive. And that is what the grace of God does. Therefore, our justification by grace alone is to the glory of God alone. And salvation and faith itself is that gift. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. So God has poured out his grace. God has given us his grace so that we may 
receive his gift of salvation. To God alone is the glory. But it's not just the salutation at the end of our, that statement about our conversion. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The glory of God is much more than that. All things are to the glory of God alone. Listen again to the words Paul wrote at the end of chapter 11 in his letter to the Romans. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. The words of Paul are very similar to the words penned by the apostle in John chapter 1 verse 3. Where John writes, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. All things were made through him, and all things exist to his glory. For without him no created thing would exist. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. In whom he justified, these he also glorified. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul written in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. If you love God right now, it's only because God first loved you. We see that in 1 John chapter 4, 19. He did not love you generally. He loves you specifically. He didn't choose you generally. He didn't just pour out grace generally upon you. As God's elect, he chose to love you, and he chose you specifically in him before the foundation of the world. So to those who love God, meaning those who are the called according to his purpose, he is working all things together for good and for glory. That is our good and his glory. The promise of God is that all things are leading to his enduring glory. That is, to the glory of God alone. We see a picture of this in the book of Revelation. Where the elders before the throne cast their crowns back at the feet of Jesus. And Paul writes concerning those whom God foreknew, saying that he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. And he called them, and he justified them, and he glorified them. So the scripture does not say that we will not be glorified. What we're saying is the glory belongs to God alone. Because the only way we end up there in the state of glorification is by God's grace.
It's not of anything that we have done. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It is only by God's grace. This is the picture we see of the crowns being cast back. Because whatever crowns, whatever rewards, whatever we receive, we will know in that day that we have it only by God's grace. Therefore, all the glory belongs to only one. It belongs to the Lord. You were made. You were made for the glory of God. Glory is not determined by our circumstances. As in good circumstances make for much glory. And when things go really good in your life, things are really good, it's kind of glorious, isn't it? But when things aren't so good, it doesn't feel so glorious, does it? Well, glory is not determined by our circumstances. Good circumstances, we think, make for much glory. And so bad circumstances make for little glory. But that's not how it works. That is the thinking of the world. That is the thinking of the carnal mind, which is opposed to the spirit. God's glory transcends our circumstances, meaning His glory is never subject to our circumstances. But our circumstances are always subject to His glory. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. For all things are for your sakes, that God, having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The glory of God that is working for us carries a weight that is far more exceeding and eternal than we could ever think or know. But we will experience it one day. This is God's promise. We were created for the glory of God and God uses all things, yes, even our afflictions for his glory. To seek God's glory is our greatest responsibility, but also our greatest privilege. And if you think about that statement in just a moment, if we are living to seek God's glory, that means that our life is going to be consistent with who he is. It will be consistent with the life walked circumspectly and worthy of the calling with which we were called. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I've read several excerpts from the Cambridge Declaration. I want to read the excerpt from the Cambridge Declaration concerning 
soli of Deo Gloria. And I quote, during the third century, the highest form of worship toward God could only be offered by those in full-time ministry. And so the clergy and laity were separated with greater glory going to the clergy, thus drawing glory to themselves instead of giving glory to God alone. The service of God was considered the only worthwhile calling, while, other, while all other vocations were common and inferior. They believed that ordinary work was necessary but demeaning. In response to this false teaching, the reformers began to use the term calling to refer to any vocation that God equipped someone to perform. They believed that whatever work God had given us to do, it was to be done faithfully. And it would glorify him in the same way as any other faithful work. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul teaches that whatever we do, it should be done by faith to the glory of God. The reformers made no distinction between spiritual or temporal, sacred or secular. They believed that God had created us to be workers or producers, whether you were in the pulpit, in the field, or in the home. Everything done by faith would bring glory to God, close quote. So when it comes to the glory of God, man often makes distinctions where God does not. God ordained all, and all things are to bring glory to him. R.C. Sproul writes in his article titled, What Does Soli Deo Gloria Mean? And I quote, Soli Deo Gloria is the motto that grew out of the Protestant Reformation and was used on every composition by Johann Sebastian Bach. He affixed the initials SDG at the bottom of each manuscript to communicate the idea that it is God and God alone who is to receive the glory for the wonders of his work of creation and of redemption, close quote. Bach understood the spiritual principle that each man and each woman is to glorify God in their particular work or particular calling, just as the pastor does in his particular work and his particular calling. I don't bring more glory to God because I'm a pastor than you bring glory to God because you are whatever God has called you to be. That's not how it works. That's how the thinking used to be. It's why we had a reformation. Because people felt inherently inferior to another class of people because they didn't have the same vocation or the same calling. And none of you should feel inferior about your vocation or your calling. This is why Paul says it's unwise for us to compare ourselves to one another. You don't compare yourself to the pastor. The only person you should compare yourself to is to Jesus. And we all, in our own vocations, in our own callings, in our own lives, with our own gifts, gifted to us by God, are to bring glory to God in everything that we do. Every believer is a king and priest unto God. 
but with different callings, with different vocations by which they bring glory to God. He is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We are commanded to do all to his glory, but to him alone belongs the glory. Psalm 115, verse 1. Our children quote this as a word to live by in our school. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. We are to do whatever we do as unto the Lord, and so we do all to the glory of God. And that is his command, but it is our privilege. The glory of God is to be recognized in all things, but specifically, the glory of God is known in the face of Jesus Christ. Psalm 104 pictures the glory of God in all of his creation, in nature, in our work, and in all of his ways, this psalm declares to us that the glory of the Lord shall endure forever, Psalm 104, verse 31. And that enduring glory of God is revealed and made known to us in all of his creation. Just look up into the stars at night on a clear evening. But that glory that is revealed in all of creation is most powerfully and most specifically made known to us and made manifest to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the face of God's glory. God has brought us into his very glory by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he has saved us and justified us for his glory alone, and none of it is attributed to us in even the smallest of ways. Therefore, we say with confidence, it is all to the glory of God alone. To him be all the glory. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want to welcome you to the Lord's table. You have been called to worship him this morning. You have been called to worship. You have confessed your sin and you have received the assurance of pardon. You have been consecrated by his word. And now you are invited to come to his table and to commune with him. This is when we can visualize Paul's words in Romans chapter 12 when he says, I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God to, let, to, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a burn offering, an ascension offering to the Lord. And this is what is happening as we come to this table. 
communing with the Father, eating his bread, drinking his wine, being renewed to go back out as he commissions us to be his witnesses to this world. Christian, welcome to the Lord's table. Welcome to this Thanksgiving table. Come and celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus. You all are welcome, young and old. Please stand for your charge. As we seek to glorify God through every aspect of life, there is great joy in knowing that we exist for someone and for something greater than ourselves. That truth is not to exclude ourselves, for it pleased God to create us and to save us and make us his very own special treasure. We are to find our greatest joy and highest pleasure in him. And each of us is uniquely created for our own specific part and the greater plan and purpose of his story. We do not have to know all the details of our part or of his story. But we are to know that all is to the glory of God alone. Therefore, we are to live knowing that all we are and all we do is to the glory of God alone. Amen? Amen.